Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled Human Weakness and God's Strength. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 15 and chapter 16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. God has entrusted the proclamation of the saving news of Jesus to human beings. And as we know, human beings come with issues. And that's why every once in a while I see a bumper sticker on an automobile which reads, the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. Or I I know of one t-shirt that reads, I see stupid people. And I suppose the person wearing that t-shirt believes that he or she doesn't fall into the category of the stupid people. You know, I, I think... You know what I'm saying. It's common to hear people say they find people frustrating and hard to deal with, obnoxious. And to these common expressions, I think, as Christians, we need to respond in two ways. First, let's get back to the basics and confess that all people are made in the image of God. And furthermore, the good news of Jesus is news that is intended for human beings. God sent his son to be human, not something else. And therefore, God's concern for the human race, his compassion for us, even in our sins and failures, should inspire us to think of our fellow human beings with grace and not with disparagement. But while we say all of that, let's also admit that all human beings, and you and I, my friend, are among them. Well, we have our foibles. We're quick to take offense with others. We make promises we don't keep. We misunderstand. We we get distracted. We don't pay attention when we should. And we can all be annoying as well as we can all get annoyed. And after the Council of Jerusalem, things are set for taking the saving news of the gospel as far and wide as possible. So let me explain. The Council of Jerusalem, which is described in Acts 15, that was a watershed moment in the history of the Christian faith. See, it proclaimed that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised in order to belong to the Messiah or to have their sins forgiven, to belong to the people of God. Some things in the Mosaic law were only for Israel. They belonged to a previous dispensation before Christ came and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice. And so the demand that Gentiles needed to become Jewish, that wasn't on. And with that decision now firmly made, the door was wide open more than ever before to take the saving news of Jesus to every people group under heaven. But as I began by saying, God has entrusted the taking of the priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus to human beings replete with our sins as well as our weaknesses. And so as the Council of Jerusalem winds down and the church is unified in her theology of Gentile evangelism, it's time to move forward. So let's read Acts 15, 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know, up until this moment, Paul and Barnabas did not yet have the vision to expand the reach of the Christian faith. All they wanted to do was go back to those churches that they'd already established on their first missionary journey. 
Luke, who records this, simply says they wanted to see how they were, that is, how the churches were doing, and that seems necessary. I mean, after all, they had seen on the island of Cyprus how much influence the Roman proconsul had on their evangelistic efforts and how one evil man could have done great damage to the growth of the faith. And then as they traveled north to the mainland of what we now call the nation of Turkey, they saw how easily strong opposition would form. In Iconium, certain people had sought to have Paul and Barnabas stoned to death. And then in Lystra, Paul had been stoned, but amazingly had survived the experience. And as I noted when I studied that text, it's likely that the effects of that stoning left Paul with lifetime difficulties. But as good shepherds, the two men want to know how these newly formed Christian communities are faring. Were they strong in their faith? Or had they been intimidated by their enemies? And then, had any false teachers that had been corrected in the Council of Jerusalem, were these false teachers who had taught that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, had these guys, having been corrected in Jerusalem, now simply taken their false teaching someplace else? So there are all sorts of good reasons not to plan to reach new people groups, at least not for now, but to attempt to strengthen that which had begun. I think that's good. For if we gain new territory for Christ, but we lose the territory that we've already gained, well, you know we're not making progress. And there is a point of application here. See, it's important to keep being involved in global mission, to bring the gospel where it's never been heard, to plant new churches, to reach new people. But if this is done at the expense of having healthy, biblically-rooted, Jesus-loving local churches, well, we're losing ground. You know, everyone can't gain new territory. Someone has to hear the call and renew declining churches, challenge false teachers in existing churches, and stress the holiness and purity of the local church. I mean, those who do that are also valuable. And so at this moment, Paul and Barnabas, having a missionary mindset and yet recognizing that you can't abandon the existing church, decide they've got to go back to those churches they have begun. But then a strong disagreement rises between these two, faithful, loyal brothers in Christ. Luke simply says that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, well, and Paul, because John Mark had abandoned them at a crucial time, thought it was a bad idea. Indeed, so strong was their disagreement that Luke says the two men decided to split up their missionary enterprise. What was all that disagreement about? Well, Paul pulls back a bit of the curtain in Colossians 4 verse 10 when he mentions that John Mark and Barnabas were cousins. You know, it does seem to me this was a family issue, at least at some level. But there was also more. Let's go to the book of Galatians. If my way of reckoning is right, Galatians was written shortly after the Council of Jerusalem, and listen now to Galatians 2, 11 to 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, did you hear that? Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Notice those last words. You know, that might be an insight into the personality differences between Paul and Barnabas. Paul, in the face of great opposition, always found the courage to stand up for the truth. And Barnabas may have had a weakness. You know, he sought peace even with those who disagreed about the truth. And Paul may have known what was at stake. Barnabas, although a courageous and faithful Christian, had a foible. He had a weakness. He was ready to make room for his weak cousin, 
who had been ready to compromise in the past, and he was also intimidated by strong and opinionated Christians who were preaching something he should have opposed. At any rate, the optics of this dispute between Paul and Barnabas shortly after the Council of Jerusalem, it can't have been good. Christians fighting with each other, Christians disagreeing, Christians deciding they can't carry on in ministry together. You know, it's, it's never good when that happens, and it reminds us that sometimes Christians don't get along. But here we see that God is greater than human foibles. Yeah, human weakness is everywhere, even among the people of God. But God is greater than our weaknesses. And so Luke simply mentions that Barnabas took his cousin, John Mark. He journeyed to Cyprus, the island that was Barnabas' home. And Paul chose Silas, a well-known and able leader in the early church, and they journeyed north through Syria and then on to Cilicia in what we now know to be the southeastern end of modern-day Turkey. I suppose we might say that God's strength is greater than men's weaknesses because it's not hard to see, you see, from a tactical point of view. It's far better that this team split up than to keep them together. If they stay together, They're not going to reach as many people, but by splitting up, they're adding people to the team. They're able to go back and strengthen all the churches. In short, in spite of their differences, it would seem that Paul and Barnabas must have decided who would go where. And Luke, who records this event for us, simply says, they strengthened the churches. Doesn't the application of this passage just jump off the pages and into our hearts? If the growth and health of the Christian faith depended solely upon human beings acting without weaknesses, oh, in my goodness, the church would never have grown. And so for you who want to criticize Christian leaders because, you know, some are too humble and some are too proud and some are too outgoing and some are too introverted and some are better administrators than others and and some are better encouragers, well, you can tell where I'm going. And perhaps it's time to see the power of the gospel, the power of our God, is greater than human weaknesses. And for Pete's sake, you know, give some of our leaders a break. Would you do that? Recognize that God is at work in them and give thanks to God. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I wanted to thank you for your prayers, your gifts, and support towards the calendar year-end financial goal. We're so appreciative to report that the campaign was a ministry success. I can't express enough our gratitude for your generosity. Now, Back to the Bible Canada is well-equipped to begin a new year of sharing the gospel to more people in more ways than ever before. Your gifts allow this Bible teaching program to reach the ears of so many, some growing in faith, others perhaps being introduced for the first time. One listener recently wrote, God knows and cares about the intimate details of our lives, and He is using you to communicate His love and mercy and grace. Please continue to support the ministry in 2023, or even perhaps become a new monthly partner. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Rather than following the events of both missionary teams, Luke chooses to follow the missionary team of Paul and Silas because it is there that the great breakthrough is going to occur. But before it does, Luke mentions 
an important addition to the team. I mean, you might remember that initially, when Paul and Barnabas had set out, they thought it was important to add John Mark, a third member. And here we find another third. And this young man will in the end prove to be one of the most effective team members Paul will ever have. Acts 16, one to three. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. There is, I think, a great deal of drama here. I mean, first of all, remember that it was at Lystra that Paul had been stoned, and then his unconscious body had been dragged out of the city, and he was left for dead. And from there, Paul, greatly injured, had gone to Derby. We're not told of any drama in that city, but Luke says that when they preached the gospel in Derby, they made many disciples. Indeed, they were very successful there. A church was born. Where did Timothy come from? I mean, many scholars think that since Luke mentions Derby and then Lystra in that order, that Timothy lived in Lystra. Did he come to Christ during the preaching of Paul? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but since later in Acts 20, verse 4, Paul mentions a man named Gaius of Derby and then mentions Timothy after that, not saying Timothy was from Derby, it seems to make sense. Timothy was most likely from Lystra, which of course means that he was from that violent city that had attempted to stone Paul to death for preaching the good news there. And Luke mentions he was a disciple. And in our language, he was a Christian. But in our day, we tend to think anyone is a Christian who simply calls himself or herself one. But in Luke's time, such, such confusion didn't exist. Timothy is a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. He surrendered his will to the will of Christ, and now he obeys the teachings of Jesus from the heart. Very good. He's a disciple. But what we find next tells us that he comes from a very complicated background. His mother's a Jew and his father is a Greek, and by all indications, the father is not a disciple of Jesus. I say it's complicated because it becomes clear that Timothy's mother and his grandmother, they both became disciples of Jesus. And we know that from the last letter that Paul wrote, and it's found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Just the way that reads tells me that Lois and Eunice were sincere about their Judaism, and when the gospel of Jesus was preached, they immediately concluded that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah and Savior the one who provided forgiveness for sins. But as I've said, it gets complicated. I say it's complicated because according to later rabbinic law, and we can't say with certainty that it applied to the time of Timothy, but, but it probably did. That is to say, according to later rabbinic law, a child that was born to a Jewish mother, but not a Jewish father, was considered Jewish. And so from that perspective, Timothy would have been considered a Jew. But here's the problem. How does a faithful Jewish woman marry a Greek? I mean, was there a time when Eunice was anything but faithful? Did she become faithful when she heard Paul preaching in Lystra? Well, nothing is said, but we do know that according to later rabbinic law, when a Jewish woman married a non-Jewish man, the marriage within Judaism, well, that was considered non-legal. I suppose in our language, we might say the rabbis would have thought the two of them living together apart from marriage. And yet they still 
thought of the child they produced as a Jew. And for that reason, the mother Eunice would have been required to have her son circumcised. And yet, according to verse 3 in our text, Timothy wasn't circumcised. He was an uncircumcised Jew, which, of course, would have been a non-observant Jew who didn't care about his religion. Now, why wasn't Timothy circumcised on the eighth day the way all Jewish boys would be? There can be, as far as I can see, only two explanations for that. The first is that when he was born, his mother didn't think it important. And the second possibility is that Timothy's father simply forbade it. If it's the second reason, then we would have to think that his Greek father had little respect for Judaism. And if it's the first reason, at one time it was his mother that had little respect for Judaism. And so however it was that Timothy had come to Christ, we have to imagine it came through drama. But Paul would call him in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, my true child in the faith. Again, it seems then to me that Timothy came to Christ during that horrible nightmare of persecution when Paul was preaching, and that God did something miraculous. Timothy was born again. And that brings us to verse 2. By the time Paul gets back to Lystra, Timothy, now a disciple of Jesus, is very well spoken of by the brothers, not only in Lystra, but also in Iconium. And that would mean to me that these two churches were in regular contact with each other. They were encouraging each other through trying times. And Timothy must have been an Iconium sent by the leadership of Lystra. Timothy became Paul's colleague because he had become known for his faithfulness. And that is, I think, a template for all Christian leadership. Never bring a person into leadership until that person has shown faithfulness wherever else that person is ministered. And Timothy was just that. Again to verse 3. And to mention that Timothy was not circumcised, Luke tells us that Paul circumcised him personally, and that demands an explanation. Remember, I said that Galatians was written sometime during these events. Ah, that's where it gets complicated. That's because Galatians 5, 1 to 4, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Those are very strong words. If you're not circumcised, Don't you let anyone religiously circumcise you or you fall from grace. And yet, here, out of what seems to be backtracking on those very words, in Luke's words, he says, because of the Jews, which means the Jewish religious leaders, to keep them from criticizing, Paul circumcises Timothy. Is that what Paul did? Well, now listen. It simply will not do to say that Paul circumcised Timothy to evade criticism. A part of Paul's message from the start was freedom in Christ, that we're saved by grace through faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus on his cross, not by circumcision. Don't let anyone tell you any different, he says. And yet here he is circumcising Timothy, but even here it gets complicated. Acts 16, 4 and 5, which tells us what Paul did immediately after he circumcised Timothy. It says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. 
So what was the message of the Council of Jerusalem? It was quite simply this. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of Jesus and not by circumcision. But that's not all they said. They said that the church must not demand that Gentiles be circumcised. And I think here's the answer why Paul did what he did. Timothy wasn't a Gentile. Do you remember? He was considered a Jew. And Paul's very clear about his theology. One of the things that his enemies constantly attacked him for was that if his message were allowed to stand, it would mean the end of Judaism, the end of the law, the end of faithful Israel. See, on that note, you know, I've often heard this same criticism of Christians from certain sections within Judaism today. Christianity, they teach, is warfare against Israel. It's the ultimate anti-Semitism, they say. It seeks to banish the law and therefore undercut the very basis of the culture and faith of the people of Israel. Now, Paul wouldn't fall to that. That's why he had Timothy circumcised to teach the Jews that true Christianity is not war on Israel. It's a fulfillment of the hope of Israel. That's also the reason Paul utterly refuses to have Titus circumcised because Titus is a Greek. To the Gentiles, Paul had to say, you're not saved by law-keeping, but by faith. And to Israel, Paul would say the same thing. You're saved not by law-keeping, but by faith. But that doesn't mean that faith in Christ destroys Israel. And that's why Paul circumcised Timothy. And I began by saying that the faith is preached by human beings who are beset by weaknesses, troublesome moments, and all sorts of difficulties. God cares about our weaknesses. His gospel will destroy neither Jew nor Greek. It will offer salvation to many in spite of our foibles. John, thanks for your message. Let me ask you, how should we understand the difference between foibles and sin? Well, I mean, foibles can be oddities, and I think we all know that. Um, sin is whenever we break the Word of God. God has given His law. Christ has commanded us to do certain things. And whenever we do not do what he calls us to do, or whenever we break the words that he has given us to do, we are in sin. Well, there are times when, uh, you know, the foibles in our life will simply be our own weaknesses and uh, our own, you know, <laughs> let me say weirdness. Uh, in, in those cases, of course, we, we want to make room for human weakness but we don't want to normalize sinful behavior as saying that's just human because that's not true. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that in doubt, with God's blessing, 
would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.